This is Everyone Talks to Liz Clayman. On this week's episode, the best of Everyone Talks to Liz. Let's give something to our investor listener audience. What's your biggest investment right now that you really like and see potential in? And I think it's pretty fair to say you don't invest in American stocks, correct? Well, I have some, but they're a small percentage of my mm-hmm. portfolio. But I think the best opportunity right now is the opportunity my mother blew uh, back in the 1970s, and that's gold stocks. I mean, I think that especially junior gold stocks, I think we're going to see stocks that go up 50, 100x. I just think that, that we are on the verge of the biggest boom that we've ever seen in the price of gold. I mean, gold is about 1,600 an ounce as we speak. In the 1970s, when we first went off the gold standard, gold went from about $35 an ounce to over 800 in the span of a decade. Uh, that was a big move. And, and people who understood uh, what was coming made a lot of money. But you know, people who were invested in bonds and the S&P 500 got wiped out during the 1970s. It was a terrible decade uh, for investors. Right. And I think what's coming now is going to be even worse for your typical investors, but even better. Because this time, it's not just going off the gold standard. I think the dollar is going to lose its status as the reserve currency. I think it's going to fall precipitously. The dollar lost about two-thirds of its value against you know, the Deutsche Mark and the yen and the Swiss franc in the 1970s. I think it's going to lose an even greater percentage. How, but, but Peter, they, let me push back. How can it fall and do what you predict it will do when you have a government system that keeps putting pillows down under it to prevent any even scratches or bruises. They'll but just remember, print money. See, but that's the problem. It's the printing money that's going to destroy the dollar. You see, the government's attempt to prop everything else up, to prop up the economy, to prop up the government, to prop up housing, to prop up the stock market, it all involves printing more dollars, printing more money. So the only tool the government has is to print more money. But once the dollar starts to crash, that tool doesn't work anymore. Because if you print more money, you're just throwing gasoline on a fire. So all the money that they create in order to prop up all the other bubbles ends up pricking the dollar bubble. And then that's the end of it. And the dollar is going to be destroyed and gold is going to be remonetized around the world. And the people who invest in it now, I think, are going to make a killing. I think we're going to make more money betting against the dollar than we did betting against the subprime mortgage market. And so the the, the next, this is the greatest trade is going to be these gold stocks. And and nobody is doing it. And it's been a long time coming. Uh, It's, you know, I've been waiting uh, many, many years for this payday. And because they have pushed, you know, kick the can down the road, right. I'm going to get paid a lot more. I'm waiting more, but it's going to be a bigger payoff. And people, you know, we have a gold fund. You know, I manage separately managed accounts of all gold stocks, mm-hmm. right? But I also have a fund that anybody can buy. This is the Europe Pacific Gold Fund, EPGFX. It's got five stars. Uh, you know, I, ha- I was the number one gold fund for the five years ended December uh, 2018. I think I'm one of the only gold funds that's positive this year. You'd be surprised that gold stocks, you know, were down this year, even though gold's been up. Well, the miners but, have I mean, had I, a very tough time. The miners yeah. have just languished. And now some of them are up. But yeah, but I think that's because investors don't understand how big this bull market is. All the investors are expecting the price of gold to go down, even as it keeps rising. I mean, gold is up 60% in the last four years, and people don't realize that. But if you go to the start of this century, 
Gold is beating the S&P. Gold in 2000 was under $300 an ounce. It's over $1,600. I do so gold has, risen more than, gold has risen more than stocks, but we're just getting started. But the real opportunity, these gold stocks, I think they're giving them away. They're super cheap. Obviously, they're not without risk. And if I'm wrong about this, people can lose a lot of money in gold stocks. So I'm not saying that it's a sure thing you know, by any means. But from my perspective, right, shorting subprime wasn't a short thing either. I had to tell people, hey, I could be wrong. Maybe housing prices will go up forever. Maybe I'm wrong about this. But if I'm right, I gave people a way to make money. If I'm right about what's going to happen to the dollar, if I'm right about what's going to happen to gold, then this is a way for people to make a lot of money. But rather than try to do it yourself and risk getting swindled like my dad did, you know, let you know, put your money in my fund because I've got a great guy, Adrian Day, managing it. In fact, I don't even manage it myself. Gold stock investing is such a niche business that I don't even know enough about it to know which ones are good and bad. So I hired somebody that's been doing it for 40 years, has a great track record. So he is running my gold fund. Peter, yeah, I knew from senior year that you were different. Our listeners of Everyone Talks to Liz, they can hear you're definitely different. I call it Peter Vision, Planet Peter. I'm yeah, thrilled to I have you on. You really need to keep that under wraps, though, because nobody has any idea that you're that age. That's the problem. Now, <laughs> you know, you're letting the cat out of the bag. I, I tell you to keep quiet about that every time I see you. That's Own why it. I say, when you, when you say we went to school together, I say, yeah, you were my, my best pupil. I don't want people <laughs> to think you're... Well, everybody's getting older. Own it. That's how I look at it. Peter, thank you for joining us on Everyone Talks to Liz. So my parents immigrated from Punjab, India in the 80s, um, you know, just to to create a better life for themselves. Um, and, you know, my father particularly, he started, um, you know, working a few odd jobs um, in like the labor field. So he had a plumbing background in India and, and kind of brought that with him to Canada. Um, and he was working like $3.65 at uh, for an hour jobs, um, mm -hmm. eventually was laid off from that job that he was actually, you know, depending his income on. And he decided, you know, I, he wanted to be an entrepreneur and that he wanted to start his own company. So he, uh, you know, took all the money that he had saved up as well as, um, asked for, you know, a loan from friends and family, um, and opened up his own kind of plumbing and hardware shop, if you will. That's kind of like the beginning phase of the company. Uh -huh. um, and he was, he started off doing more of those service calls. Um, and, you know, he, he, it started off, but it wasn't um, extremely successful, nor was it picking up. And he was getting really um, anxious. And um, eventually he even ended up hurting himself on a job site. And what happened with that was he literally couldn't go to job sites um, and do any work. So he was really scared that he was going to have to shut the business down. So a friend of his suggested that my father get into sales because he was a really uh, eloquent talker and he <laughs> really could. Um, he, he my, my dad truly can sell anything. He's really good at um, explaining and being detailed. So um, he suggested he get into sales and that he would help him 
you know, get a few accounts. And that's what my dad ended up doing. He pivoted the entire business model and reshaped what his company was going to look like. And that's what we still do to this day is we do retail sales uh, for plumbing, uh, lighting, and kitchen wear. Um, that's all like luxurious, perfect for new build interior designer customers and, um, and builders. When did you catch the entrepreneurial bug? Obviously, you were watching and, and living vicariously through him, both through the the peaks and valleys of, of his attempt at really starting a business. And what did you learn from that? At what age? Yeah. So, um, you know, I think I was just always inspired by my dad. He's self-made. He created the life he wanted for himself and for his family um, and became extremely successful. Um but, you know, he also instilled a, an amazing business acumen in my in my siblings and I. Like every Saturday since I was like 14 years old, I had to work at the store. And he made us, you know, do customer service. He made us sell toilets. He made us, um, <laughs> you know, um, even do purchasing and, and, and really do anything that we could to clean up the store, open the store. It was our responsibility on Saturdays. Um, and I think that just taught us a whole lot about um, how to run a company. Um, and he really instilled like family in it, um, family, um, you know, the, the importance of family. Mm-hmm. So And work ethic. And work My gosh. <laughs> but how do you go from that, selling toilets to selling roses? I mean, talk about two ends of the, the spectrum here. You know, get to the story of, of Venus et Fleur. And, and I'm sure our listeners have probably, I guess, had an experience when it comes to ordering flowers where what they ended up getting was not what was marketed to the person who was sending the flowers. Yes, absolutely. So um, my journey began with Venus A. Fleur with my co-founder, um, who is also my husband. Um, at that time was my very new boyfriend. Um, we were living in <laughs> two different countries. He was living in New York. He's from here. And, and I was living in Vancouver. I was actually working at the store that day at the plumbing store. And um, he sent me flowers on Valentine's Day. What he had ordered was not what I received. So I ended up ten- sending him a picture of what I received you know, thanking him for his gesture. Um, and he was extremely disappointed because, you know, what he had paid for was exactly, was completely opposite of what I received, um, which started a conversation. Um, and we realized that multiple people had gone through this experience after like reading reviews and, and just talking to other people that we knew, um, that you're trying to send this gesture across, you're trying to impress someone or congratulate someone. And what is sent is, completely opposite of what you've ordered and also kind of makes you look bad in a way. Um, and that's how he was feeling. He's like, I'm not cheap. Like I really spent all this time buy you a beautiful arrangement. And so, you know, that, the, the idea brewed from that experience. Um, so we decided that we should be the ones to fix this problem and disrupt the floral industry. And that's kind of what we set to do. But the, disrupting the floral industry, there have been so many attempts. 1-800-Flowers, all these other companies that promise we do it differently. But you took it a quantum leap forward in that not only did you come up with a way to disrupt it, you came up with flowers that last a year. 
you've got to explain to our listeners in, in detail how that's done because they don't look fake and they look beautiful, but there, there's obviously, I'm not asking you to give away your state secrets or anything, but you've got to explain how the process works. Yeah, absolutely. So um, just to kind of rewind that story a bit, Sunny and I's biggest, um, you know, goal was that we would be able to ship our flowers worldwide. And that was something mm. that we had set from the beginning when we were writing our business plan, that these flowers should be received anywhere. If you're in London and you want to send to Hong Kong, you should be able to do that. So that was kind of the beginning steps. We had started working with a farm in Ecuador um, and they have two sectors of their farm. We were buying from the, the main sector at the time. Um, and we wanted, like I said, we were testing um, and we were sending out flowers to friends and family to see if, you know, our concept was proven. And obviously, um, you know, things didn't work out in the beginning. Um, we had sent out flowers at, to multiple different locations throughout the U.S. to friends and family. And what they had received was basically wilted flowers, dead flowers, or, you know, kind of like messed up flowers, if you will. We ended up going back to our farm and explaining, you know, what we were trying to achieve. Um, and they have a biochemist in-house. Um, so we worked with the biochemist to explain to that we wanted to increase the longevity of the flowers. And they actually already had a treatment that they could treat the flowers with. Um, so together, we perfected the, the eternity solution um, to create our eternity roses. And basically what it does is it's like a wax-based solution. It stops the the growth of the flower in its most peak state. Um, mm -hmm. And we're able to actually dye them any sort of color. So we can remove the color so that uh, of the flower. So let's say it's growing red. We can remove it with this non-toxic bleach. And then we can dye it any sort of color in the Pantone book. And the interesting thing about the, the solution is it actually doesn't affect the texture, the shape, or even the scent. Like the, the, the flowers actually still have their scent at the end. So it is um, pretty remarkable. And like, you know, you mentioned they last up to a year and they don't need water. You really don't have to do anything. You just have to make sure they're away from sunlight and heat and humidity. So it's pretty incredible. And, um, you know, after we had taken over the rights of that solution and that flower, um, and we still work with this farm to this day, just to add, um, we ended up going to market with it. And, um, you know, that's been our, that's been part of our business ever since. So how did you get people to notice what you were doing? I mean, you've got supermodels, you've got the reality stars and the Kardashians, a lot of celebs. What did you do to get attention? Yeah. So we, um, you know, started socially on Instagram, posting our flower arrangements. And, um, you know, luckily in the very beginning, started seeing traction just organically through customers. Um, and our very first Valentine's Day, we ended up selling out. We didn't project properly and ended up, you know, selling out all of our inventory. But a few days before that, um, we were, re we were, um, uh, contacted by the Kardashians team and they were saying that they really loved our flowers and they would love to, you know, see them in person. So that obviously was extremely exciting and enticing. So we sent out flower arrangements to their entire family. Um, and so on Valentine's day, you know, it's myself, my husband, Sunny, his brother, and a friend of mine were kind of just sitting and reflecting over the holiday and, my friend is scrolling through Instagram and she goes, Oh my God, Seema, stop. 
Kourtney Kardashian just posted Dina Safler. Like, take a look at this. So all of us are jumping. We're like screaming. We're so happy. Two minutes later, not even two minutes later, Chloe posts. And it was just so, I still remember the, the, the feeling like it was yesterday. We were just so excited. And, um, you know, our phones kept ringing, emails were pouring in, our following just went skyrocketed high. Um, and, you know, ever since then, I think it really created that validation. And um, we've seen a lot of, you know, influencers, VIPs and celebrities kind of um, also support. And the Kardashians luckily have been huge supporters since the very beginning. Their their entire family has, um, you know, used our services. So we're really thankful for that. This is Everyone Talks to Liz, and we'll be right back. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clayman. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clayman right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clayman. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. After 36 years, you say it was time to go. Some people would say, I've invested so much. I want to go all the way or I'm too comfortable. I I don't care what ethnicity anybody is. People get comfortable. What shook you out of that? And how did the Dallas Mavericks opportunity come up? Well, I, I was never comfortable. In my 36 years with the company, I was never comfortable. We moved people around all the time. I have 15 different jobs. So we were always moving. So we went from California to North Carolina, there for six and a half years, uh, then moved, you know, moved here into a whole new role. Uh, I, hadn't been, I hadn't been in human resources. I had been out in the field in the technology arena and public policy and all that, uh, but was part of a great team to help actually transform the company. And so then we had had so many mergers. Then we bought uh, DirecTV and then it was like, okay, it's time to go. I said I was leaving at 30 years, but at 30 <laughs> years, I ended up uh, battling uh, stage three colon cancer. Oh. Uh, so I couldn't leave right then because I was battling chemotherapy. So it wasn't time to retire. And then that's when the chairman asked me to come here to Dallas. And we were on a mission. We were on a mission to transform the culture and get some great things done and to get us some great place to work list and all that. And we finally did that. And then it was, it was time to go. I wanted to take a year off, get my, do- my last daughter out of high school, the next one out of college, and then take a year off. And I started my own consulting firm and I wanted to just take a deep breath. And then I was actually headed to be the president of a college. Uh, I wanted to either lead a historically black college or a small rural college. I wanted to give kids an opportunity who normally wouldn't have an opportunity, free, extraordinary education. And I guess the Lord had other plans when uh, Mark Cuban ended up uh, calling me. And it was February the 21st. It was the day the Reverend Billy, Dr. Billy Graham died. And I remember getting up that morning and I was writing a blog post on impact because I was being impacted by 
two different things. Number one, we had the uh, teenagers who were actually protesting in Parkland, Florida, uh, oh, because yeah. of what had happened there. And then the Reverend Billy Graham passed away. And so I was sitting there writing a post about the impact these teenagers were having on my life and the impact that Billy Graham had had on my life, my whole life. And I thought, okay, I'm actually smack dab. You know, I'm like 58 years old. I'm right in the 57 years old. I'm right in the middle of this. And so after I finished writing that, I was on a call with my client and my other phone rang. I mean, I kept getting text messages. And Liz, I thought it was one of my four kids. Uh. <laughs> I, mean, honestly, I thought it was one of my kids texting me for money because, you know, that's what they do at that age. Right. And, yeah. so, and I told my husband, I said, get this phone because one of, the, one of the kids need money. So just transfer it, whatever it is. And I kept on with my client and then he, came <laughs> he said, hang up the phone. He said, uh, Mark Cuban is trying to reach you. Liz, don't judge me. Okay. Don't judge me. But Who's I said, Mark Cuban? Who is Mark Cuban? Ah! I, I didn't know. Okay. I didn't know. And when I think about it, people say, you didn't know Mark Cuban. I said, well, he didn't know me either. Okay. He's living his life. I'm living my life. I got four kids. I got a career. I got all kind of extracurricular st- you know, tr- stuff going on with my nonprofits. Didn't watch a whole lot of TV. I didn't know him. That's just the bottom line. And some people don't believe that. I don't care what they believe. I did not know the man. And so when my husband's trying to tell me who he is, and finally he just said, tell your client, you'll have to call him back. It looks like something's going on. Mm. And so when I called him, he asked me if I could come and see him. He told me he was having a crisis and asked me if I had seen, you know, kind of on the news or anything, what was going on. I said, no. And he said, can you come and see me or I'll come and see you. And Liz, you'll love this. I told him, I said, I have a mammogram at two o'clock and I have learned the hard way. What happens when you don't keep your doctor's appointment? Mm. I said, I'm a, I'm a stage, stage three colon cancer survivor because I didn't have a colonoscopy when I was supposed to. I said, so I'll have to come and see you later. And so we scheduled it four o'clock, went to see him. It was storming that day. I went to my mammogram. I came back home. My husband was decked out in Mavs colors, <laughs> head to toe. And I'm thinking, what is going on here? Head to toe, black suit, the blue shirt, the blue gray. And I'm like, what are you doing? He said, I looked up all the colors. And my husband is not a fashion guy, okay? He said, I looked up all the colors <laughs> when you were gone. And th- these are the colors you're supposed to have on. He said, it can't be Golden State Warriors colors. It can't be cow colors. I mean, you're going to have to like, enough with the blue and gold. Here's what you need to wear in there. So I guess my husband decided that I was going to take this opportunity. I hadn't decided that. And so I told him, I said, well, I need you to grab your iPad. I'll grab mine. We got to read up on what's going on before I get to his office. And honestly, by the time I got to the Mavs office, I had decided, hmm, I'm probably not going to do this. I mean, if everything in this Sports Illustrated article is true, what woman in her right mind wants to work here, if it's true? And so my husband's like, well, let's just go in and talk. And I will tell you, I got the warmest greeting from the receptionist and then from Mark. And then we talked for about 55 minutes about what was going on at the Mavs. And he told me what he wanted me to do. He told me, you know, he had got my name from some folks and he said, I need help here. And he was so sincere about really wanting to help. He told me some things that he had heard you know, that were going on. He had met with the employees that morning. And frankly, he was, he was broken. He was broken. And so I asked him a lot of questions because I'm trying to honestly make sure, you know, he's not a part of the problem. And I told him, I said, my brand is important to me. I've spent 36 years, you know, trying to work on it. Uh, My brand is important to me and I I can't give it up uh, coming into an organization, you know, with these kind of issues. And so I need to pray about it. 
left his office. Two women stopped me on the way out of his office, uh, told me some of their stories and why. And they asked me if I was the person, you know, who Mark said was going to come in and talk to and you know, help them. And so I went home and prayed about it. Came back the next day and Mark, I was there for three hours before Mark even knew I was there. Because as I walked in, employees just started talking to me. I found a conference room and for three hours they were just coming in talking to me. And then finally he came in. He said, I didn't know you had come back. And so I said, yeah. He said, I guess the answer is yes. I said, yes. And it just dawned on me. You know, even when I was praying and talking to people, for some reason, I was just uniquely qualified to, to do it to pull a team together. I had worked on cultural transformation. I had led people and I just felt called to do it at that time for the sisterhood. Now it ended up being broader than that, but I just felt like, okay, whatever else I think I'm getting ready to do, I'm putting it on hold because this is obviously what the Lord needs for me to do right now. So, well, now I get to talk to you. Well, for people who don't know what was going on, with the Mavericks a couple of years ago, a hugely misogynistic background and a, a very uncomfortable place for women. Uh, so in a nutshell, just let people know what had been going on before you walked in that door. Yes, uh, it was a place where uh, there was uh, sexual harassment. And I'm not going to say alleged because uh, an investigation was launched and we did our own investigation as well. Uh, but we had outside investigators uh, that confirmed that there uh, were years, uh, 18 plus years of sexual harassment and not treating women very well and a, a very bad culture uh, mm-hmm. in the Dallas Mavericks at the hands of a few people. Uh, but, you know, if, if it's starting at the top, then it just yeah. makes for a bad culture. And so then there were just uh, things going on, people doing just things, you know, inappropriate types of things, the way they were treating people, bully type of behavior. Uh, Absence of HR processes, lack of accountability, uh, favoritism, just stuff. Everything you just do not want to find in a workplace. Do you think, do you think that um, those problems held the team back from actually winning another championship for that time? I mean, how does it all weave into the business of basketball? Well, you know, this was all going on on the business side mm-hmm. and the business side. It's not like this anymore, but the business side was very separate from the basketball side. So they were in their silo. They didn't work together a lot. And this is based on what some of the folks on the basketball side are telling me. In fact, one of the first things the coach said to me, uh, Coach Carlisle, is I want us to work together. And I said, we absolutely will work together. And so I'm very proud of that, that we're all together now. But it, this was going on in the business side. And so not a lot, whole lot of people knew about it. Uh, the basketball side was doing their own thing. And I, and I will say, I, I believe the culture that we have now is a good one. And we all work together because it's basketball and the business of basketball and it all has to come together. And I do believe when there's a bad culture, it will stop you from winning. Now, did it stop our team from winning? I mean, we won a championship in 2011, uh, but we haven't won one since then. But I'm sure uh, there's a lot of reasons for that, but stand by because one will be coming soon. Ah, there you go. And again, come end of July, you get your chance again. The Mavericks are going to Orlando, where the NBA will once again start up that season, which had been frozen in time. 
it's the weirdest thing in the world what this coronavirus has done for so many organizations, not just sports, but for the NBA. We all remember that Utah Jazz Oklahoma Thunder game a couple of months ago where one player tested positive and the whole game just stopped. They turned yes. out the lights, they sent everybody home. What was that moment like for you when you heard about it, saw it? I don't know if you saw it in real time. Tell me. Oh, yes. We were playing that night. We were playing when it was announced that the season was getting ready to shut down. Uh-huh. So we had been on a call earlier that day uh, with the league, and it wasn't the decision had not been made to shut down the season. We were just all preparing. We already had a business continuity plan in place, but we've had ours in place pretty much ever since I've been there because it's just something I learned at AT&T. You always have to have a plan in place for whatever, whatever the crisis is. You just plug yeah. in the name. But so we were okay. And so we had a meeting uh, earlier that day and just said, you know, I told Mark, we're, we're prepared for whatever happens. So we're prepared. So we're actually in the game and it comes across the wire. Our guy, uh, Scott, our media person, our PR person, he gets the news. He texts me. I text Mark. He goes to take the call over to Mark. And we're like, oh, my gosh, it is going to shut down right now. When this game is over, we're not playing again until Lord knows when. And but we were ready, though. We immediately I had a few things I want to make sure happened whenever, you know, we did make the decision. And that is we want to make sure our people knew that they were going to get paid. We didn't want anybody to think they were going to have an, you know, financial crisis on top of a public health crisis. Hmm. So we want to make sure people knew that. Uh, I huddled my team, the very, my staff, the very next morning and said, okay, uh, we're on hiatus. You guys are prepared to work at home. We have all the technology. We've been working, doing all this for the past year and a half, getting us ready. You're going home. I need you to go home. Those of you who have kids, you need to think about what's going to happen with your kids because people can't work. I mean, we couldn't expect anybody to come in and really be productive the next day. So we said, do what you need to do. And by noon, go home and we'll get back to you and let you know the next steps. Uh, But, you know, we could be working at home for a while. We don't know. But we were ready. And then we want to make sure, you know, we had counselors in place and all that um, and all the health, you know, information that people needed. Mm -hmm. Gave them the plan. I met with my team. It was Friday the 13th, my mother's birthday. Uh, (laughs) And and it was was Friday the 13th, my mother's birthday, because I remember we were going to have a game that Saturday the 14th. And it was an early game, which was unusual. And I was going to fly to California and surprise her for her birthday. So I was on my way back to the San Francisco Bay Area. And I just so happened to have a physical because I have them twice a year um, ever since, you know, I was sick. And the doctor and I told the doctor, he says, oh, you're looking great. Everything's great. What are you doing this weekend? I said, well, actually, I, uh, you know, the season was suspended, but I'm actually flying to California tomorrow to see my mother. And my doctor said, no, you're not. So you're not doing that. He said there could be five or six people on that plane with COVID. You can't do that. You have a compromised immune system. You cannot do that. So that was kind of like startling to me. I thought, wow, this is real. And I didn't like that. And I kind of don't like people telling me what to do. But he's the doctor. So I had to listen to him. And I left his office. And then I went to my office and met with my team. And I said, this is pretty serious. So let's just map out what we need to do here. Um, And then uh, we put our plan in place to make sure the players had activities and all that. And then it dawned on us the following week, you know what? We may not be playing the game of basketball, but we're going to be playing the game of life with people. Good, because good. There are all kind of people who will need us, all kind of community needs, kids uh, who need to get uh, technology so they can learn, uh, nonprofits who will need us, who are focused on feeding people. I mean, just in a race. So then we put a whole community plan together and, uh, and we launched it. So we've been uh, playing a game of life with people. 
For more episodes of Everyone Talks to Liz Clayman and other podcasts, go to foxnewspodcast.com.